I was solicited to be an artist in residence in an organization called New England Center for Contemporary Art in Brooklyn, Connecticut. I went and traveled for months and months all through Europe, the backpack kind of trip, even though at this point I'm about, I don't know, 33, 34 years old. Uh, so I kind of dematerialized and then went on a journey because I was kind of living a dual life of working in, the, in, in what we artists tend to call the straight world and at the same time very involved in my studio and really becoming very indulgent in uh, learning more and more about art history and uh, Western philosophy and things like that, stuff that I had, had limited exposure to growing up. And it was like an awakening for me. I mean, I come from very working class parents. My father immigrated here from Italy. And so I went on this journey and then came back and decided that I wanted to start a place that really was based on the values and the ideas that had been established through that process. And that was the idea of a completely unjuried, uncensored venue for the arts. Uh, creating a place where it was as much about process and about the opportunity for audiences and artists to commune as it was about art or artists as a commodity. That was Bert Krenka, a visual and performing artist and the founder and artistic director of AS220, a nonprofit center for the arts in Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Established in 1985, AS220 provides a home for the arts through the maintenance of residential and work studios, galleries, and performance and educational spaces. It's seen as playing a significant role in the development of Providence's vibrant downtown arts and entertainment district, as well as demonstrating a strong commitment to providing art education to the city's at-risk youth. I spoke to Bert Krenka recently and began by asking him for a more thorough description of AS220. Uh, well, right currently, it's uh, an arts organization that employs about over 50 people, about a $2.7 million budget, three buildings right in the downtown Providence, all uh, historic restoration projects that have a combination of affordable live-work studios, uh, work studios, youth programming, bars, uh, restaurants, performance space, gallery, visual arts, exhibition spaces, uh, print shops, tech labs, um, I'm forgetting something important, dock rooms, uh, commercial tenants, in the truest sense, mixed-use development. It's built on some very, I think, strong ideals and values. Uh, so the idea of the unjuried, uncensored mission of AS220 is a real critical component. I think, to date, the uh, Equal pay policy has been a kind of critical value of ASU 20, so myself as founder and director is getting the same wage as the, the latest and newest and youngest hire. So I, I think it's an organization that continues to reflect on its mission and its values in every decision and in every direction uh, that it takes. Um, and I think that's a lot to do with its growth and the strength of its place in the city of Providence. So you say what you mean and you mean what you say. That's the objective. How did it all begin, Bert? Because you were there at the beginning, and this has been a big year for you. It's your 25th anniversary. Yeah, my 60th birthday to boot. Happy birthday. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it really came out of a process uh, like most things. and You know, uh, it was an idea that evolved through a, a series of circumstances. I had done an exhibit uh, in 1982, 83, 
at an alternative kind of gallery space in Providence that got panned by the daily newspaper. There was a lot of political content. It was severely panned. An artist in town did an op-ed piece criticizing the critic. As I like to say, I kind of in retrospective, I agree more with the critic these days than I do with the artist review as time has passed. Uh, but it brought a lot of artists. We started meeting. At my house, we wrote a manifesto that really kind of critiqued the entire system of art support in this country, uh, the, both the gallery education system, grants, granting agencies, and it critiqued anything and everything um, and said that artists shouldn't be discriminated against in any way, whether it be politically or economically, and that art has been sort of stripped of its value in culture and in development of society. And, and so that manifesto, if you will, uh, got published by a lot of the weekly newspapers, and then we started getting phone calls from people saying, how would you do it different? So we created an event called the Rhode Island Art Event that was decently attended, but not massively attended, that was an unjuried, uncensored exhibit. Any artist or performer who wanted to participate was welcomed. Uh, and the challenge was to be able to accommodate it. So we did a big salon-style hanging. And that process, which was probably over a six-month period, is really where a lot of the ideas and thinking around AS220 were formed. And it was in a time, contextually, where Providence was in just desperate places. It was at the absolute kind of end of a run here in the city. And it was really desperate. A lot of even the sort of commercial clubs that were doing live music and things like that were closing down. Um, and a I like to think of AS220 as sort of being the pilot light that was just barely keeping the flame alive in the city. Of course, Providence has gone through a tremendous transformation ever since. And I think ASU 20 has played a very significant role, as humble as it was in terms of its beginnings. I literally started ASU 20 with $800 and just put rent down on a space. I want to just backtrack for a second. Sure. Why is unjuried important? Well, I think, first of all, I think the idea of ASU 20 is to create opportunity. For the longest amount of time in the early stages of ASU 20, a lot of the funders and foundations and people like that would always push back and say, how do you ensure quality? And the response from me was always that you ensure quality by providing opportunity. We as a people have generally been pretty poor judges of what's important in our time. You know, Van Gogh sold one painting in his lifetime. Try buying one now. Typically, it takes time for those things to surface that I think of are going to be of critical importance to defining culture. And I think rather than try to be the arbiter of that, provide as much opportunity for that. AS20 used to have a thing called the stink tank, and we wrote this paper called the compost theory. And it's really that idea. It's, a, it's really about creating opportunity and fertile ground without any pressure or need to try to predict what the next greatest thing is going to be or the, most, or the next important thing in art is going to be, and uh, just creating the environment. You know, I'm wondering, as I'm hearing you talk about this, Bert, whether that doesn't have a lot to do with the growth of AS220 and its place in the community, because it, it would seem to me that the community would have more of a stake in a place where they knew that they might show their stuff or their brother might or their daughter might or their aunt might. Or, in fact, has or at this has. point. 25 years yeah. later, there's very few people that haven't been touched in one way or another by ASU 20. Yeah. I completely agree. I think there's a tremendous amount of sense of ownership. I think there's a tremendous uh, trust. 
I think even the equal pay policy, you know, the executive director isn't making, you know, high six figures. And, and I think there's just a phenomenal amount of trust in the organization and, and tremendous amount of community ownership. And you're right, the base continues to build by virtue of the fact that we don't reject any artists doing original material in the state of Rhode Island, that we try to accommodate every one of them in every art form. The base just continues to swell. So rather than be loyal to a stable of artists and with some, and excuse the expression, I, I hate sounding like I'm 18 when in fact I'm 60, but it's really contrary to sort of a lot of the kinds of elitist ideas and thinkings around art uh, that have uh, been pervasive in, you know, uh, throughout the world, really, not just in the United States. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking, and I think that's where the equal pay also comes into play, is working against that kind of elitism. That's exactly right. And it's about trust. And, I, you know, there's always the, the idea of founders and founder syndrome, and uh, secession is a big question that we hear all the time with people who are investing in the organization. But I've never felt that this is my place. I oh, have always felt that this is, uh, belongs to the community and, and on occasion have reached out to, to the community and they've responded extremely well in terms of helping us to sustain or, or move through crises at different periods of time or plateaus that we've hit. So, I, you know, I think, again, I have to refer back to the, the, the values and the attitude and the philosophy uh, and this concept of, of trust in the organization that has had a lot to do with our growth and sustainability. Now, back in the day when you guys first started out, you had a shared living space and studio space that was also illegal and unheated. Well, you know a lot about us. I I think I'm going to start interviewing you in a second here. (laughs) We're going to turn this around. Uh, Yes, that's all absolutely true. And there are anecdotal stories that I tell, and then there are a few I don't. But... um, Yeah, that's the way it was. I mean, this was driven by, you know, what I felt, what I knew was a very powerful idea, as simple and as obvious as it may be. Did I know how it was going to grow or what the the, the real potential of it was? Uh, Well, the potential of it, yes, but how it would manifest itself, I certainly couldn't predict because I hadn't even had those experiences. I I didn't even know what a 501c3 was. So it was definitely rough and tumble, uh, in the beginnings, and I will also say that in the beginning, for me, it was a matter of choice. Like, in other words, I didn't go through art college and then a graduate program and then come out in the community and say, I'm going to start an art space. Uh, I had li- worked many, many, many different jobs, really, really coming from a working class background. It took me 13 years to get a bachelor's degree from the state college. I had lived a whole lot of different lives and had really decided that this was it. My commitment and my passion for what we were attempting to do was 150%. You know, uh, there was no other path anymore. And crucial to the development of AS220 was a city that was willing to work with you and be supportive of you. Well, the city was hungry. It really needed something happening. And I think at the time, the mayor, uh, Cianci, the notorious Mayor Cianci, he was really knowledgeable about the potential of art and entertainment, if you will, in, in terms of economic development and those kinds of things and generating uh, interest in a city. So he was pretty open to stuff, to things, to ideas, and the city was absolutely desperate. Like I said, a lot of venues were closing. Artists, the biggest hope and dream of artists in, in the city of Providence at the time was to get to Boston or get to New York. Uh, that has changed dramatically. Artists from all over the world are migrating into Providence now as a result of what we've created. 
AS220 moved to Empire Street and really is credited in a lot of ways with the revival of the area. Can you describe what it was like when you first located there and describe what it's like now? Well, the building was in horrible disrepair. It was a 22,000-square-foot building, and the, the in front of the building was all uh, drug and prostitution trade. Trinity Repertory Theater, a well-established repertory theater, is right at the end of that block, and people would not walk down the sidewalk in front of our building to get there. They would cross the street or go in a different direction because it was so th- such a threatening uh, block in the city. I mean, we also helped to transfer Richmond Street where we were originally as well, and we're now working on Matheson Street. So, yeah, it was in horrible uh, disrepair, and there was a horrible recession going on when we did that building. We always seem to, our timing seems <laughs> wild on so many levels. Um, but it also provided a very visible kind of activity that provided a sort of sense of hope within the city that was palpable. I mean, people felt it, sensed it, it was written about. People just saw this really positive activity and so many volunteers contributing. We did a lot of sweat equity we put into that original building as well as having a a contractor. You mentioned mixed-use development. Why were you so committed to that? What does that bring to the table? Well, I, I, it, it makes it stronger. I mean, it's just a concept. It's, you know, diversity in every sense. I mean, we talk about diversity often when we talk about ethnicity and race, but I think diversity in terms of different kinds of, you know, between nonprofit sector, commercial businesses, uh, arts and culture, you know, food and drink, you know, is a program of AS220. You know, we have a restaurant that works primarily with local farmers and helps to support the local uh, kind of so much conversation around that stuff. And and I think the, the more diverse the community, the more local it is in terms of in any one of our buildings, we have all of these components commercial tenants. We have food and drink in every building. We have uh, public labs that people can participate in. We have uh, artists in residence in each of these buildings. So I think as we continue to go forward as a country and talk about the value of diversity in in many quarters and all, I hope, it's diversity in a very broad sense. Uh, So that mix, I think, is uh, is uh, really helps to strengthen and sustain uh, the future of our organization. We're so connected in so many ways to the community. Well, speaking of the community, the current issue of NEA Arts looks at artists in the community. And I know you've given a lot of thought to this, and it plays a crucial role in the development of AS220. Well, that, that was the whole original intent. You know, I, I had this very romantic idea. When I came out, if you will, as an artist in the community, I thought I, they were going to be rolling out the red carpet because all my ideas were kind of fantasies based on a lot of self-teaching where I was very immersed in the culture of Paris and, and in Europe and uh, the turn of the last century and really romanticizing about the role that artists play in shaping community and uh, acting as mirrors to to, to society, uh, provocateurs, and and all of that. And that's what I thought was valued and was really kind of shocked at how little that was honored uh, when I sort of surfaced in the community as an artist and felt that it was critical that I created a place for my own survival, if nothing else, where that was the priority, that recognizing artists in art as a really critical part of how we define ourselves as a community, that there was a place where that was the focus. 
You've also created artistic, educational, and vocational opportunities for young people in Providence, including programs for kids who have run into trouble with the law. Yeah, I think when you we work in the Rhode Island Training School, which is the juvenile detention facility in Rhode Island, we work with over half the population in every given week doing art classes of all types. I mean, from dance to music to whatever. Um, we try to reconnect those kids with us in the community in our youth program. I'm the one who initiated the youth program, but it, it was like, what's the most marginalized population in terms of youth that we could be serving, given that AS220's mission is not to provide just to everybody, but in particular to people who do not have the same kinds of opportunities or access to these resources, gallery space, studios, rooms, whatever. And um, when I was introduced to the population at the Rhode Island Training School, besides my own particular history and compassion for these kids, it looked like the, the a population that also unfortunately reflected a lot of the changing demographics in our city and our state, and it also was the most marginalized community of people that I had ever met. So it seemed like a natural to us. And I also believed, selfishly, that by engaging these young people in their stories, that this would be another way of empowering AS220 and ensuring its sustainability and ensuring uh, its presence in this community long into the future. I, these kids come with incredibly powerful stories and histories, and through art, we can honor that, whereas social services and often is always looking at that as something that needs to be changed, and these kids need to be altering that narrative. And we say, no, it's important. We want to hear it. You have insights into things that are critically important and very moving, and we want you to take control of your personal narrative. And I don't know any other way to sort of penetrate uh, these young people than by honoring their voice and their personal creative expression. You had a satellite facility called the Barrow Street Studio that was primarily for youth programs. And it morphed into AS220 Youth Studio. We brought that downtown for a variety of reasons. We initially went into one of the more economically repressed communities in the city to start the program, and for a whole variety of reasons, and a lot of it generated by youth and families, that we brought it all downtown where the buses come, and it, it's more democratic in a sense in terms of access statewide, and a lot of people were afraid to go into certain neighborhoods because of turf issues and gangs-related stuff and things like that. So we eventually moved it into our building downtown and have been expanding it in, uh, into downtown ever since. We, do, we have about 150 kids engaged in any given week. In different arts? Uh, every art form you can imagine, on the visual, painting, photography, we're performing arts, we have recording studios for the kids, they record demos, they create all original beats and lyrics and music, and we have dance, every, every art form. And we also have the tech labs that we work with. We have a, a fabrication lab uh, that's partially in uh, partnership with MIT and the Center for Bits and Atoms. Tell me about the Providence Youth Arts Collaboration. Your organization is a partner. What is that, and how did it come about? Well, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff that has kicked up, I mean, that did not exist before ASU 20, and on some level we have, we've helped inspire some of it. So there's a lot of artists-owned space and a lot of organizations that are doing tremendous stuff here. I think for the size of our community, we have a very strong base of very sustainable uh, arts venues and programs, and part of that is in the youth community, uh, new urban arts, community music work, city arts, um, I'm missing some, ever dance, uh, they all have these really powerful and strong youth programs, and it, it just made sense that we create a kind of uh, collaborative association 
uh, out of all the people providing this kind of after-school uh, youth arts programming. And it's uh, really substantive and it uh, has a very, very, very strong place in the community. What are some of the other results that have been brought about by the Providence Youth Arts Collaboration? Nonprofit organizations, and I think maybe particularly, I don't think it's particular to the arts. I think it's all in the nonprofit community or the, the NGO community. I think there's, there, there can be a, a very high level of isolation, you know, where you're working very hard, you're very mission-driven, very strong values, and you're out there hustling to make it work and balance your budget and stay in business uh, against some pretty intense odds, particularly uh, with the economy being the way it is. And it's amazing how some association and some sharing and some identification and some best practice and, uh, you know, just creating a community to just work through some of this stuff together, how empowering that can be. Uh, And I think it's really uh, been a very positive experience for us. I mean, there's so much conversation given to the idea of collaboration. And I'm doing a, a, a presentation in Canada and in, uh, in Memphis soon. And it's interesting because they're asking not for me just to talk about AS220, but to talk about uh, Providence and how art and culture has played a role in the, the sort of renaissance of Providence. And the more I look at it, the more I realize that there's been a tremendous amount of cross-sector collaboration and things like that, whether it had been very conscious or very strategic, like the youth program collaborative has been uh, or not, these things do not get done and people do not sustain themselves in isolation. Not possible, particularly under the pressures we're under now financially. So it's hard for me to quantify exactly all of the, the, the positive results of this kind of collaboration, but it's significant. And the collaboration that you have with the other youth arts organizations, you've sort of alluded to it, but do you see that actually improving arts in the community in general? Well, I think that that's absolutely true. I mean, I think we're creating, we're working with young people to create, uh, you know, a kind of support system for them to be able to really imagine themselves uh, in creative fields. And that strengthens our community, you know, and, and an awareness. It's it's creating an awareness. So those kids also go home to their parents, you know, and a lot of the kids that are, that are being served by these youth programs are new communities of people who are living in our cities, people who have immigrated in from the Southeast Asian community, from Africa, from the Latin communities, uh, and they're new communities, and these kids are coming home and being served by this and feeling positive and constructive and productive in ways, and they're bringing that home, and that's, I mean, so it it really builds upon itself. I mean, I think the next great task is to get the arts and and design back into the public school system, and I I am very adamant about driving that conversation. We we, we should be teaching kids in grammar school uh, principles of design, And, and, you know, we can do it through game technology and all of these kinds of things, stuff that will really engage our kids. So, I mean, we got a lot of work to do. Does the local government continue to be supportive of AS220 as well as the other arts organizations, particularly youth organizations? Well, the city has branded itself as the, the creative capital. So they have bought into this whole idea. Now, you know, of course, the city is struggling with finances and balancing its budget. So monetary resources are uh, a challenge in terms of supporting this. And I feel like this is such a great opportunity for artists in the community to kind of hold the city's feet to the fire, given that they're branding themselves this way. 
And, you know, we know that people like Richard Florida and a lot of people have really predicted this idea of a creative class and this kind of creative economy and uh, knowledge economy and all of this stuff. And I'm not big on trendy expressions, but I think we are looking to the future when we're thinking about design and creativity as being really economic drivers. And slowly but surely, really, it's really been internalized by the municipality. And I think even the state is beginning to understand it as an economic uh, generator and that it has a lot to do with the future of, of our economy, not just here, but I think worldwide. And I also think creative people. I mean, the, the kinds of problems that we've created for ourselves as a species, uh, without investing in and in creating a strong base and infrastructure for creative people, we really need artists in the mix and in the conversation to solve some of these incredible and overwhelming problems that we've created for ourselves. That was Bert Krenka, founder and artistic director of AS220, a nonprofit community arts center in Providence, Rhode Island. If you want to read about the impact of arts in other communities around the country, like Kankakee, New Orleans, New York, or Houston, check out the latest issue of our magazine, NEA Arts. You can find it on our website, arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. The music is Renewal by Doug and Judy Smith. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on Beyond Campus and look for the National Endowment for the Arts. Next week, Azar Nafisi discusses Things I've Been Silent About, a memoir about her family and growing up in Iran. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.